morning. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, don't worry about that. We'll have the scriptures up on the screens. But uh, we're glad and honored to have those of you who are guests with us this weekend. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. And these are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today, and so we look to these moments as a community to come around the scriptures, to learn more about who God is and who Jesus is and how we call to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus Christ. And so with that said, I'm gonna invite everyone to stand to your feet for the reading of the word. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25, word of the Lord would say this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will be saved. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked, Which of the three? Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you provide it for us so that we can understand and learn and grow and have a clearer picture and understanding of not only who you are, but who you have called us to be. And so, Father, I pray that in these moments we know there are so many distractions, so many things we're thinking about, things we have to do, maybe weddings to plan or different things that we have on our calendar. But, Father, right now the most important thing for us is to focus in on what is it that you would have for us in this text. So Lord, I pray for our hearts to be ready to receive the word that you would have. Would you bless us in this time? In your precious and your holy name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated. I've heard it said that how you respond to an interruption is really who you are. That's not good. That's not good because as we all know, life is filled with interruptions. We get interrupted all the time. I, I get to do this a lot in my own home, right? I've got, I have a family. And of course, there are times where you get interrupted. 
doesn't matter what I could be doing. I could be maybe on my computer. I could be working on something. But inevitably, but my kids will run into the room and, and they'll say, Daddy, watch me bounce the ball or watch me do this thing that you've watched me do a hundred times. But watch it one more time. This time will be different. Right? Life is filled with little interruptions like that. Even just this past week, you know, I was, I was reading and my wife came to me and she said, Hi, you know, should I have cereal or cheese? I thought, you obviously are pregnant because that is an interesting combination. But, you know, part of me is like, I don't know. I mean, what do you want to have, right? She even showed me a dress yesterday morning that we have a wedding coming up this Thursday, actually my brother's wedding. And she lifted out the dress and hey, should, you know, do you think I'll be hot in this? I have no idea if you're going to be hot in this. But again, life is filled with interruptions. And you know whose life was also filled with interruptions? The life of Jesus. He did not get to escape interruptions. In fact, if you think about it for just a moment, many of the stories of Jesus, many of the stories that some of you who were maybe, you know, you grew up in kids' church, many of the most well-known stories in the scriptures begin with Jesus being interrupted. And the text that we just read is no different. It begins in verse 25 with a lawyer standing up. Listen to what the word said. And behold, a lawyer stood up to do what? To put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now just get the image for just a moment. This lawyer is not one who is listening to Jesus speak and is, you know, captivated by what he's speaking. You know, maybe Jesus is speaking from the the scroll of Isaiah and and this person's being, you know, turned in their heart about what they're hearing. They just want to stand up and say, that's a good word, Jesus, or I needed that word. No, no, no. Our text tells us that this lawyer is trying to put Jesus to the test. That's his ultimate motivation here. Now, when we hear the word lawyer, many of us are going to start to think about, you know, the idea of someone being represented by another. But in this context, lawyer is not talking about representation. It's talking about interpretation. This lawyer, part of his life was given to understanding and interpreting the law. The law, in the Old Testament, they called it the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the Old Testament laws. And here's what the laws did for the people of Israel. One of their functions was to offer these external parameters of behavior for the Jewish people to follow as a way of life. And this lawyer was well-versed in these laws. He understood these laws. And again, he's not asking this question, how do I inherit eternal life in order to gain information? No, he is trying to test Jesus. See, the lawyer and the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they did not like Jesus because Jesus was disruptive. Jesus would do things like sit in the home and have a meal with a sinner, one who was not abiding by this very important law. And the Jewish religious establishment, they could not handle that Jesus would do such a thing. So part of the lawyer asking this question, he's hoping that Jesus is somehow going to maybe not respond accordingly. 
Maybe show that he disrespects the law. The, the lawyer's heart posture is, I'm gonna try to prove that Jesus doesn't actually respect this very important law from God. He's looking at this as an opportunity to try to show him up, which is never a good idea with Jesus. And we're gonna find that out in just a moment. Verse 25, so here's what Jesus says to him. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Notice Jesus does not answer his question. He actually provides a counter question. And in good Jewish fashion, he responds with the question, well, what does the law say? Jesus knows this is a lawyer. He knows that he would be well-versed in the scriptures. So instead of me telling you, why don't you tell me what the law says? And this is what the lawyer does. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the Jewish law, there were roughly 613 different laws that the Jewish people had to abide in. And when the lawyer responded here, what he did is he used sort of the, the upper framework for which all these other laws came under. He references Deuteronomy 6.5 and then also Leviticus 19.18. This idea of Deuteronomy saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's this idea of having God be ultimate. The entire totality of your being is in submission to and reverence to this deep love for God. And then the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, he actually affirms this idea when he says that all the other laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, Jesus commended the lawyer's answer. Yeah, you've answered correctly that if there was a way of inheriting eternal life by your doing, that would be it. Fulfill that law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The whole of your being should be in submission to the way of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, that would be the way to do so. But you see, there's a problem. And Jesus knows it. And the lawyer knows it. That no one to this point has been able to fulfill that law perfectly. See, the law was a way of life but it was not the ultimate way to life. See, sure, you should try to live that way, but you'll never be saved that way. We said earlier that one of the functions of the law was to do what? To outline external behaviors, creating a way of life for the Jewish people. But it actually served an even deeper purpose. If you go to the writings of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he's writing to the church in Rome and he would say these words, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's interesting. 
that through the law, there's actually this ultimate purpose of having the individual come to that deep realization of this conscious awareness of their sin, that they are not going to be able to add up to the righteous requirements of the law. But the issue is the Jewish people, they saw the law more like a ladder, right? I'll do this, and I, and I do this, and if I can do enough good things, hopefully God will accept me. Interestingly enough, they may have had that mindset thousands of years ago, but how many know that there are many people who still feel that way today? I mean, if you have not bought into the whole postmodern thinking that there is nothing after just this life, and you still might buy into the reality that, yeah, there probably is something, you might believe the thought, well, in order to get to that something, I hope I've done enough good things in this life to where God might allow me into whatever that might be. But see, the problem is it doesn't work that way. The law is not a ladder to try to scale. It's actually... A scale. Let's put it this way. In September, at some point, I will pull out the scale in my bathroom. I'm going to wait till September. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand on it. And see, most people, they try to get fit for the summer. I do, I do the reverse. I'm more of a winter guy myself. Summertime, it's full of barbecues and fun and cake and, and s'mores and the random ice cream chips that really are not random because we go all the time, the same days every single week. So what's going to happen in September is I'm going to step on that scale. Oh no, that's not good. Who knows the way the weeks are going, it might be a number I've never seen before. We'll find out in September, I'll let you know. See, that's in essence what the law is trying to do. You would try to abide in it, but it's not something you're going to scale. It's actually a scale that's going to say, you can't do it. You're not able to fulfill this. But see, that's really hard for the Jewish thinking. They want to try. This is, this is important. This is the law. This is what it's about. And so just think about it for a moment. If you're this lawyer, your thinking would probably be, okay, if eternal life is met through my doing and abiding by the law, if it's this ladder, so to speak, it better be a small ladder, right? Which is interesting because even in the next verse, what does it say? But desiring to do what? To justify himself. He said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which actually makes a lot of sense because if I have to love my neighbor, well, who is my neighbor? And let's hope it's a very condensed group of people. We're talking like what, Jesus? Like maybe the two or three people who are around me, but it's not gonna be anything more than that, right? See, the only way that he can justify himself is to attempt to limit the extent of the law's demand and consequently limit his own responsibility. Now, there were different ideas for the Jewish people at this point as to what would be your neighbor. But the one thing that the Jewish people agreed on is that your neighbor would only be in the construct of the nation of Israel. The idea of love for your enemy or love for the foreigner, that would be a foreign concept for them. So, Jesus then tells a story. 
And it's important for us to kind of do the work that we just did to lay this out because oftentimes we might just read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even when we got to that point when I read it earlier, you probably thought, oh yeah, I know this story. But we have to keep in mind that this story, this parable, is deeply tethered to the conversation that Jesus is having with the lawyer. So Jesus begins and says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was roughly 17 miles. It had an elevation change of 3,300 feet or so. And it was known to be a very dangerous road to go on. There were these different kind of cave-like structures on the sides of the road. So robbers and thieves would hide in those caves And then when a traveler would come by, they would think, okay, I think we can take this one. Let's go. And it was just known that this was a very dangerous stretch of road. Now, Jesus then continues on and he says this, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Thank God the priest shows up. But wait a second. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Oh no, that's unexpected. So likewise, a Levite who also worked in the temple when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. I love that Jesus says by chance, right? Almost like, oh, thank goodness the priest would come because we know the priest is going to have mercy on this individual, but he doesn't. Now in the kind of the echelon of the temple, you'd have the priest at top who would kind of offer sacrifices and then underneath them would be the Levite who kind of helps in the order and the the service of the temple. So it's not the priest who is going to help him, but hopefully then maybe the Levite's going to come. But also the text says that he does not. He goes to the other side. Now let's just be honest. There are a lot of reasons why they would do this. I mean, we all probably, you know, we read the story and we go, gosh, how dare the priest How dare the Levite? Yeah, okay, hold on a second. I mean, this man is bleeding, half dead. Not dead yet, but half dead. I mean, there's a great chance that the thieves and the robbers are still right around. Also, let's just be honest. These are men who are abiding by the law. And there's actually, if they were to come in contact with a dead body, which this man was close, they would then be considered ceremonially unclean. So there's a number of things going on here. Add a third element. They're coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. More than likely, the priest and the Levi had just got done doing their time of work at the temple, and they had whatever payment would have been for their services, and now they're going home to Jericho with that to maybe provide for their family. There's a lot of things going on here that would give them maybe the reason to try to just kind of skate by. Now, for the Jewish listener, if you hear the priest and then you hear the Levite. See, the lawyer's more than likely assuming that if we're working kind of in this idea of three, that the next person that's going to come would be like a Jewish layperson. Here comes the good Jewish layperson, and Jesus has something completely different in store. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him out on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
This is a shift in the story. Because again, this lawyer would never ever assume that it would be a Samaritan who's the hero. I mean, for the Samaritan to be the hero, this would be devastating for the lawyer. Now, we're not going to get into all of it today, but there is a long-standing uh, racial tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. If you know anything about your biblical history, the, the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And in around 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they exiled and they took the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Now, some of the people who were left, the Assyrians actually imported some Assyrian women to, uh, you know, marry those Jewish men and then to begin to, you know, okay, anyway. And their descendants, their children were known as the Samaritans. So these Jewish men and these Assyrian women, they had these babies called the Samaritans. That's where that, the group came from. Now, what's interesting is sometime later, the two tribes that were left in the south, they got exiled to Babylon. And when Babylon tried to get them to intermarry, they did not. Because they knew that that was a command of God not to do so. Tribes in the south abided by that command. Them in the north did not. You could see how that might create some tension between these two. So the Samaritans were known by the Jews as half-breeds and heretics. The Jews were known by the Samaritans as racist and cruel. So again, for the Samaritan to be the hero, this would be the worst possible outcome. Because really, if you think about it, what Jesus is saying is that even the Samaritan may be nearer to the kingdom than an uncaring devout Jew. So Jesus asked a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now if you notice, Jesus actually changed the question at the end. The question that the lawyer originally asked in his second part was, who is my neighbor? Jesus suggests that the real question is, do I behave as a neighbor? Now, if you look at the text, you'll also realize that when Jesus said, who is the one who was the neighbor? The Jewish lawyer, he could not even say the word Samaritan. He has such disdain and hate in his heart, he could not even say the Samaritan. He just said, I don't want to show mercy on him. <laughs> now, Jesus' command at the end, you go and do likewise. That's an interesting idea. Now, we don't know what happens to the lawyer. The, the story ends here, and then the next thing we read in the scriptures is that Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha, but sometimes I just kind of wondered while I was studying, what if at the end of that, when Jesus said, you go and do likewise, what if the lawyer came to this place of realizing, Jesus, I can't. I mean, Jesus, you know the culture I'm from. You know 
the thinking, you know the processing. There's something in me that cannot do this the way that you are asking. Jesus, I cannot. And I think the kicker is that's ultimately where Jesus wants us all to get to. Ultimately, that's where Jesus begins to do his best work in us. Now, let me make something very, very clear. If you begin to ask the question, okay, so if Jesus says the command is go and do likewise, we might then say, okay, so how do you get people to live like this, right? How do you get us who say we're followers of Jesus, you know, members of of the church of Jesus, how do we begin to live this out? Now, honestly, here's what often happens. We read this parable and, you know, a a well-intending, you know, pastor minister will say, okay, look at the Samaritan, look what they did. And the, you know, they could have also been hurt, but they didn't care. They were about this person. They loved well. Now, come on church, let's go do it. And you all go, yeah. But the problem is, here's what I just did. I tried to guilt you into it. I tried to inspire you to love. The problem is that doesn't work. It might for a little bit. Maybe as you leave today and you go to a restaurant and maybe you by chance see someone who's in need. Maybe you, you know, give them your leftovers or whatever the situation might be. But ultimately... You cannot be guilted into what Jesus would really want to see for you. And really, Jesus is even, he's not even trying to make the lawyer feel guilty in all of this. That's not the motivation behind it. See, there's the reality. Guilt will not take you where Jesus wants you to go. It just won't. This parable isn't trying to manipulate or guilt or even inspire you to be a neighbor. It's ultimately should be used to lead us to an understanding of the spiritual dynamics of what? Of becoming a person who loves their neighbor. See, Jesus' vision for his followers is not that we would feel guilted to love, but that we would do the work to become a person who loves. That's the journey that Jesus wants us to go on. And it's a journey that before it is ever external, it is first internal. And if you look at the gospels and you look at the teachings of Jesus, oftentimes he is trying to get the listener to realize that it is going to begin by something transpiring in your inner being. Look at what he says in Matthew 5, 27. He's on the Sermon on the Mount and he says these words. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus is saying the the law puts out this external behavior. Do not commit adultery. But I have come to say, listen, it's not about abiding by an external behavior code. It's about something taking place in your heart. Where that begins is lust. It begins in this inner part of you. And I want you to realize that. He goes on in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's gotta come from somewhere different than just some external hope. I love this from Dr. Tim Mackey. He would say, we want to get rid of sex trafficking and Jesus wants to get rid of lust from his world. 
He talks about the root desire to use another human being for my gratification. See, we look out into our world and we see the ravage of racism and genocide and we want them gone from our world. Jesus also wants that out of his world. But he doesn't just want to get rid of racism and genocide. He wants to get rid of pride and contempt and rage from the human heart. So again, we ask the question, how do you get people to live like this? How do we become the types of people who are not trying to force ourselves to love, but to become a person who has that inner disposition to love out of this nature that is taking place because of the work of Jesus? See, it begins inward. And I think ultimately it begins with the beautiful reality of receiving salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's the, here's the essence of everything. We first have to deal with the sin in our lives. For every human being, before we try to be a good person, before we try to do good things, before we try to implement good things that would help people, we first have to realize that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single human being has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. And if you want to be part of an incredible work in the world to renew and to restore, you first have to come to terms that you are a sinner who has been saved by grace. And you have to acknowledge that. You have to realize that. Listen to the words from the Apostle Paul. For all have sinned and they have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul said to the church in Corinth, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to realize that in this beautiful reality of salvation within its constructs is this idea that we are justified through what Jesus did on the cross. Thinking back to the lawyer for just a second, in the very beginning, he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Jesus could have not gone through any of their conversation or ever shared the parable. He could have just said, here's the kicker, you can't do anything. It's not gonna be about what you can do. It's going to be about what I am going to do. And if you would put your faith in that reality, you are going to be justified by not your work, but by my work. And the blood of Jesus is going to cover us. That is the beautiful reality of salvation. Paul said this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been what? Justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, not works, into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We cannot justify ourselves. We need to be justified. See, that's what the lawyer needed to begin to understand. He can't justify himself. He was gonna need someone else. See, up until that point, as I said earlier, no one was able to fulfill the law until Christ came. Jesus even says, I did not come to abolish the law. I did what? I came to fulfill it. So in my fulfilling of the law, my death would be able to bring something about to the human condition that was desperately needed. Now, not only are we justified through the process of salvation, we also get to experience this newness of life. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. See, that's really God's vision for those of us who profess faith in Christ. It's not just about us learning how to behave differently. The vision is that we would become an entirely different type of person. One who has, yes, received salvation, who has been justified by Christ's work on the cross, but also has experienced this newness of life. The prophets talked about this a lot in the Old Testament. The prophets, when they would talk to the Jewish people, and they would come into those conclusions that there's no way this group of people is ever going to abide by the law, they would get to this point of saying, it's almost like a new heart is going to have to be given to them. And God would say, yes. And that new heart, that new birth, that new life is going to transpire through what Jesus is going to offer on the cross. So there's the dynamics of salvation, that every single, every single human being, that would be the essence of where it begins. If you want to go ahead and do what Jesus said, if you want to love your neighbor well, okay, it begins by coming to that place of realization that you need a savior, that you need to receive that salvation. But also then there's the dynamic of formation, Friends, let's just be honest with ourselves. The culture in which we live is attempting so desperately to deform you. The things you watch and the things that you listen to and the, the voices that you allow to speak over you, whether you realize it or not, they are playing into who you are becoming. And you may not think it or realize it. You may not even care about, but I'm telling you, it is important. It is important to realize that as we listen to the news, as we listen to different articles, as we do this, all of these things are shifting one degree to another the type of person that you're going to be. I love this from John Tyson. He's a pastor in New York City. Wrote a beautiful book called A Beautiful Resistance. He says this, given the role of the media today, the polarization of our politics and the presence of a 24-hour income-producing news cycle, we are told who is deplorable and who is worthy of respect. We are told who our enemies are and why they present a savage threat to us. Things are not presented to us in a fair, nuanced, or civil way. Hate is being cultivated one social media post at a time. Each 15-second soundbite or meme is training us to release our hate on our enemies. The trickle effect over time poisons our hearts, allowing contempt and bitterness to seep in and training us to misidentify our enemies. We have all been concerned about the use of social media by outside forces to manipulate the American political process. But to be honest, as a pastor... I am far more concerned about the manipulation of our hearts on a daily basis through cultural forces. You cannot show compassion to those you are being trained to despise. Friends, we cannot allow what has become normalized in a sinful society to become normalized in the church. You need to be cautious of the words that you are speaking. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? From out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And I don't just mean what we speak, it also means what we type. I think if some of you would be vulnerable enough to maybe look back at your Facebook post from the past two years, you would realize that much of what you said comes from a place of disdain and even hate towards another. 
but it mustn't be so for us. It must not be that way for the church. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, but there's a lot going on in here. I know, but that's why we have to let Jesus into those places too. See, we need formation to take place in us. The word that we use is called spiritual formation. And here's what that looks like. I'm gonna give you just a quick definition for this. Robert Mulholland would say, spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. It's not just about becoming more Christ-like so that you can be, I'm a good Christian, I do good Christian things. No, 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 no. It's for the sake of others. I am formed to become more like Jesus so that I can be more like Jesus in the spaces that need to experience Jesus. He would go on to say this. It's a process of being formed into the image of Christ, a journey into becoming persons of what? Of compassion, persons who forgive, persons who can care deeply for others in the world, persons who offer themselves to God to become agents of divine grace in the lives of others and their world. In brief, a person who love and serve as Jesus did. But again, this is going to become from our becoming not just our trying to do. And that's what we have to realize. I'm not asking you to attempt to love people well. I'm asking you to do the work to become a person who loves well. I'm not trying to guilt you to expand your viewpoint of what your neighbor is. I'm just asking you to do the spiritual formation that would allow you to just simply become a neighbor. And see, what happens when the spiritual formation takes place, it's no longer something that you're trying to do through effort. It's actually just done through grace. It becomes who you are. You're not trying to muster this any longer. So here's what I wanna do. And when I say what I'm gonna say, you're gonna go, there's no way he has time for this. Don't worry, it's quick. But let me give you something practical for spiritual formation. I'm gonna give you six things really quickly to think about, to ponder. I think spiritual formation begins when we really rest in and interact with and respond to the spirit of God. You need to create space in your life to hear from the spirit of God. That means you might have to wake up a little bit earlier. That might mean you have to stay out a little bit later or stay up a little bit later. That might mean that you have to create some different margins in your life. But we need to be people, as Paul says in the church in Galatia, that walk with the Spirit. Now, one of the functions of the Spirit, as we see in the Scriptures, is to lead us into truth. We need to be people who understand the truth of God's word. And we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it and to help us to interpret it, help us to understand it. We need to be people of truth. I say it all the time, and I know you understand this, but there is a lot of mistruth out there. We as believers and followers of Jesus need to understand what is the truth. But it's not just about understanding the truth, it's also about practicing that truth. What did we say a couple weeks ago? The wise builder is the one who does what? Who hears the words of Jesus and does them. That's the one who's built their house on the firm foundation. So it's not just about interaction with the spirit, it's not just about understanding truth, it's about putting that into practice. By the way, when I say practice, I don't just mean simply, here's the command of Jesus, now try to do it. I also mean, 
watching the way that Jesus lived and doing those things. When you go through the scriptures and you read, Jesus went out to a desolate place to pray. We should not just say, well, that's very nice of him. We should say, ah, maybe I ought to do the same thing. Maybe Jesus is not only teaching us when he commands something or teaches something, he's also just showing us this is how the life ought to be lived. Spirit leads us into truth. We begin to practice that truth. Here's what happens when you practice the way of Jesus. You find out that you're gonna have some spiritual roadblocks. And then there's gonna be a healing that needs to take place. So you might so desperately, like, oh, I wanna love my neighbor well. I've had these thoughts about this people, but I need to think differently, but I've got this rope. Okay, the Holy Spirit needs to heal something in you. And I don't just mean in you, I mean in me. We all need that. Now, spirit, truth, practice, healing, this needs to be done in community. Actually, something really beautiful about what we're doing today. We're coming and gathering together as a community. And the last bit is that all of it takes place over time. See, if you're having that realization of like, oh, there's some ugliness in my heart, just realize that it's gonna take over time God to begin to address those things in your heart. But that's the beauty of the Christian walk is it's a walk. It's something that does transpire over time. And as we're diligent to receive salvation, as we're diligent to understand that we're justified, as we're diligent to, to really begin to operate in this newness of life and begin to form that newness of life through the way that God has laid out for us in scripture to receive the spirit of God, have the spirit lead us into truth, to practice that truth, to work on the areas of our hearts that need to be healed, to do that in the context of community and to have that take place over time, that's when you become a person who loves. And that's where we need to be. That's what the world needs from us. And I think that's what God would have for us. Now, we have a beautiful opportunity this morning to take communion together. And communion is this incredible moment that we get to take this wafer that represents the body that Christ gave for us, this cup that represents the new covenant, the blood that Jesus would pour out for us. And we get to remind ourselves of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna invite our ushers to come forward and I'm gonna ask you just to go ahead and hold on to the elements. The team is gonna sing over us, but use this time to ask the Holy Spirit, where are the places in my heart that need to be transformed? What healing needs to take place in my life? Maybe it's just a time to be honest with God to say, Lord, this is something that's going on in my world, in my life, and I need to release it to you. I need to confess it to you. So take a couple moments, have this be a time of reflection and then I'll come back in just a minute and I'll lead us into taking the elements. Let's do this together.